Hey, everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we're recording this podcast and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past and present. Let's go. Hello, and welcome to The Familiar Strange. Brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University Schools of Culture, History, and Language, and of Archaeology and Anthropology, and coming to you from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. I'm your familiar stranger today, Ian Pollock, together with my fellow familiar strangers. Julia Brown. Simon Theobald. And Jodie Lee Trimbos. Welcome to the podcast. And before we begin, I just want to say we are recording this on a historic day here in Australia. It's November 15th, 2017. We just got the result of the same-sex marriage postal survey. The answer was a resounding yes, and I think a huge wave of relief across well, six, 61% across... of Australia. Yeah, yeah, it was 61, wasn't it? Out of out of more than 7 million people who voted, which is 79.8%. Well, yeah, it was like 11, 12 million voted and yeah. 7 million yes 7 million votes. yes votes, yeah. So now it's just got to get through Parliament. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed for that, everybody. And I saw a lot of photographs of members of Parliament up on the Hill with their fingers crossed. Mm. Why they should be the ones crossing their fingers, I'm not sure, because yeah. it's been up to them this whole time. So what's coming up this month on The Familiar Strange? We're just going to say a few words about what we're planning to write in the coming weeks. Jody, why don't you go first? Yeah, so um, my next blog post is going to be a response to a Sam Harris podcast episode. Uh, it's a recent one. It was called Facing the Crowd. And in it, he is talking to Nicholas Christakis, who uh, you might recall a couple of years ago was um, involved in a scandal at Yale where he um, – he, his wife and he are the worthy masters of one of the colleges – and the college put out an email to all the students um, basically telling them what they should and shouldn't wear for Halloween. And um, Erica Christakis uh, sent out a an email, a very mild, I have to say, email to um, the students in response to that saying, um, so this is the university basically telling you what to put on your bodies. Are you sure that you want to grant them that that?" right to make those decisions about your bodies. Uh, and this was seen by a lot of students as a racist response, um, basically indicating that she thought that it was okay to wear racist costumes. Um, and from there, it really blew up and it, it got pretty crazy to the point where they were receiving death threats and eventually they, they both resigned from their roles as masters um, of that college. And so... I want to I want to write about that from an anthropological perspective because I think what we're actually seeing here is a clash of social worlds and I have enormous sympathy for the students in this scenario because I think it's easy as an academic to vilify the students who basically just were was so overwrought and a lot of them did behave badly. I have to say. Um, well, what kind of bad behavior? There was a lot of swearing, a lot of uh, some threats of violence. Obviously, the, the death threats that they received in writing, that's pretty bad behavior in my view. But also just uh, really what, what an academic would see as a, a stamping down on the academic 
mission, which is to debate, which is to tease out truths and explore disciplines. And it's it's difficult to do that when when the students involved are literally not willing to be involved in debate. And they kept saying they they on this one occasion they surrounded Nicholas Christakis. Um, and I'm I'm going to post some video of this in my blog post because it's amazing to watch. Uh, they surrounded him and when he would try and say anything, they would say, you are not allowed to talk. You do not get to talk right now. And, I mean, he really wasn't. Like he was really just asking questions and he was pretty patient, I have to say. And yet anything he said, they were just like, no, no, this is not your time. But that, that's a really key difference though, don't you think? A difference between you're not allowed to talk and you're not allowed to talk right now. As somebody who's in a position of power myself, I have to admit, I'm a white man, I'm from America, it does, doesn't get a lot better than this. I feel like I'm entitled to talk at all times, and that <laughs> probably isn't for the best. There are times <laughs> when, you know, it, it isn't my moment to speak. Yeah, yeah, and that's absolutely true, and that's that's kind of what I mean. Like, I think that is a fantastic discourse that's starting to come through uh, more and more at the moment in the media. People are, are feeling more open to be able to say, you know, white man, you are not always allowed to be the person talking. But actually, on this occasion, it, it I have sympathy for both sides. So that's what I want to write about. So what was the podcast itself? Like, well, I haven't, I'm a huge Sam Harris fan, but I haven't actually listened to that particular episode. Mm. Uh, what was the argument being put forward there or the conversation being had? Sam Harris really wanted to draw him out on this and he wouldn't really be drawn. Uh, it's only the first, uh, sorry, the second time that he's spoken out since this happened, I think in 2015, I'll have to check that. But he wouldn't really be drawn on it. And you could see Sam Harris kind of going, no, but you, you know, you did great. You were in the right in this situation. And he was very measured about it and wouldn't be drawn on that. But really, Sam Harris's argument, I think, was that academic freedom is, uh, is a crucial thing that we need to protect. And that those students were perhaps endangering academic freedom. I think that was the argument he was trying to make. Yes, I imagine um, given his usual stance on these things that he would be arguing for that. But is there a line that we can draw with free speech, Simon? <laughs> Maybe. Um, I don't know. I'm just a dude being white here in the corner. Um, I don't really... Simon feels it's not his time to speak. <laughs> yeah. Whereas I can completely overlook the irony of standing up and saying that I should not be speaking. Um, well, I, I don't know. Can we draw a line? I wonder if it's more to the point that we shouldn't draw lines, that we should, that things are fuzzy. And I guess that's kind of what I, what I want to unpack. All right. Looking forward to that coming up in the next month. Simon, what about you? What do you have coming up? I'm going to talk about something completely different. I'm going to talk about the politics of gender segregation on public transport in Iran. Really? Yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> Well, tell, tell us, us about, about that. <laughs> uh, so this is part of my participation in a conference that's coming up on mundane governance, um, which is being run here at the ANU. And so I thought I would I would turn my paper into a blog post because that way I can get my ideas out there and someone maybe will have to cite my blog post. What an awesome idea. I know, right? But basically what I'm looking at is the city that I lived in had um, had recently installed a metro line. What um, city was that? Mashhad. The, um, this is for your field work. This is for my, this is for my field work. That's right. So the second largest city in Iran. And they recently installed this metro line, 
um, which went from basically one end of the city, one of the, the far western edge of the city to the far eastern edge of the city. And one of the things I noticed about it, which is is like not it's not not just Iran that has gender segregation on public transport. Other countries do as well. Countries like Mexico now have women only carriages. Japan has women only carriages. And in so Indonesia, on. Jakarta, I used to see them as yeah. well. But there's a, there's a little bit of greater politics about that in Iran because in certain there's a kind of mandated public separation of the genders. So in places like on the bus, for instance, is compulsory gender segregation. So women go to the back and men go to the front, mm. um, and they don't know about that part. I'm I'm not here to make a value judgment. I'm just here to tell you what happens. Um, and so what I was interested in is the way actually that the, these are sort of non-binding gender se- separation on the trains because the two carriages at either end are for women only, but women can also stand in the rest of the train as well. But what I was interested in is the way that men kind of negotiated these spaces and the contexts in which it was okay for men to be in the women's Carriage. Oh, so there um, were some circumstances so where there are, men so yeah. into women's carriages? So there are some circumstances where there's a kind of greater flexibility in terms of coming in and out. Usually it's related to, I mean, the three kind of categories I worked it out as relating to are age, um, time, in, in, as in like the time of the day, and re- it's kind of geographical relation to, to where the train is in relation to the center of the city. Um, and that, So like if it's farther away from the center, it's a little more lax? Yeah, so the further, the further away you go, the more willing people are to move in and out of the men and women's sections the closer you go to the center of the city the more people kind of defiantly stick to where they're meant to be Uh, and i guess broadly i'm looking at as a matter of how we can think about authoritarian governments as as being democratic in some ways on a kind of micro level so i'm not saying that iran is a particularly democratic country but what i'm arguing is that there is a certain flexibility and negotiability in terms of these micro levels of politics. So you mean democratic, not in the sense that like people all get together and vote on what the rules will be, but democratic in the sense that people in the street end up living out the rules the way they want to? Basically, yeah. That it's a, it's a negotiated relationship with governance that I think sometimes in, in kind of broader, you know, political science and, and sociology and stuff, we miss that kind of really nuts and bolts levels of the kind of nitty gritty of everyday life. And I think there's one thing that's one of the things that anthropology is really good at getting at is definitely these kind of political relations. And so, how, oh, sorry, how people themselves participate as well. So it's not just about um, structures of governance per se as uh, people that that governance is supposedly uh, imposed upon still negotiate yeah, well, I think how it's that a, plays out. It's about a relationship, right? So it's, mm. it's how people negotiate what is a kind of a, a legal requirement and also a norm how that is actually fle- remarkably flexible in practice. So I've heard you say before that you're not a fan of the word resistance, right? So how do you see the notion of resistance as different to the idea of negotiating uh, democratically um, everyday practices? Because I think, I think they're actually qualitatively different. I think to resist implies you have some kind of intention to make a statement by saying, I am deliberately defying this rule in defiance of some power that is operating against my kind of free will. Whereas what I'm suggesting is that people negotiate these in a way that isn't specifically targeted at the state in, a, in any capacity. It's just a kind of quotidian, it's, it's, a, it's a living, it's, a, it's the living reality of how one, you know, I mean, take, a, take an example here, jaywalking, nominally illegal, but in practice, people cross the street without traffic lights all the time. 
occasionally I'd cross the street and just flip the bird a little bit to Australian nanny state. Just saying. Well, I mean... Same. <laughs> I, I definitely don't. I don't cross. I definitely, when I cross the road, I do not think about it as being a, an act of resistance against the Australian government. I'm a guest in this country. I try not to jaywalk, but it kills me. <laughs> anyway. I'm glad you brought that one up. <laughs> Looking forward to your post on that, Simon. I'm really sorry. I'm not going to make the conference next week. When is it? Soon. Mundane governments. I have a new baby. I have other responsibilities. Julia, what do you got coming up on the blog this month? Well, I was thinking of writing about the loss of Jackie Lambie in Parliament, actually. Um, Jackie Lambie is an Australian senator who uh, is the latest... Casualty? <laughs> yeah, latest word. casualty of uh, dual citizenship. So she's had to resign. Um, so now she's, she's an ex-senator. Now she's an ex-senator. Thank you, Simon. Let me just quickly explain for our non-Australian listeners. There's a clause in the Australian Constitution that says you can't serve in federal parliament if you are a dual citizen. Turns out a bunch of people ignored this. How they got away with it, I don't know. They hoped they could stay. The court said they have to go. So it's been a slow exodus as people slowly discover or reveal that they are, in fact, citizens of countries other than Australia, in addition to being Australians. And it's um, it's quite a spectacle to watch a, a government collapse, to a whole government crumble, and everybody be sort of delighted by it. It's, it's charming. It isn't terrifying like it would be in most countries. It's sort yeah, of delightful. That's so true. Please it's continue. It's ridiculous. But I don't want to focus on that governance aspect per se. I'm interested in how what Jackie Lambie brought to politics, because she was a pretty outspoken politician, and she often said things and made decisions that were unpopular. But she had a willingness to change her mind. And I think that that speaks to um, anthropological approaches as well. You know, the as the evidence changes, minds change. And I think that in that way, uh, it's a shame that her voice has been taken out of parliament. Even though I don't agree with a lot of what she has to say, I really did appreciate her attitude to openness. I would say that changing one's mind isn't necessarily exclusive to anthropologists. I think no, any but... good any good researcher should really say that the evidence has changed, I have to change my opinion, as opposed to saying How often do you think it happens though? Yeah, is that really how well, I mean, are the taken foundations of science are built on that ethos, Yeah, I mean, my partner's but... a scientist and she it's just she a given. She follows the evidence? Well, she has to. Well, she doesn't have to. Well, she, otherwise she won't get published. Also not true. I mean, science is just as much a construction as anything else. This could be a whole this other debate. This could be a whole, other, could be debate, a whole yeah. other debate. So, okay, I question for you. How do you see the difference between Jackie Lambie, who says things uh, that are outrageous and people like her because she tells it how it is and she represents the popular voice, how do you see her as different to Trump? Well, you're right. I mean, she does tap into that authenticity thing that Trump has going on. But I don't think she has nearly as much power. To be clear, Trump is an authentic con man. That's what he is for real. How can we be so sure about that? <laughs> New, York, New Yorkers, like, New Yorkers like myself, he's been in the tabloids longer than I've been alive, and I feel like we know him very well. How he fooled anybody is beyond us. So you think that he is strategic? No, I think, he's a, of... I think he's a con man. I think he'll say whatever needs to be said in that particular moment. Okay, but Jackie Lambie, I think, believes in what she puts forward, right? That might change, but I feel like she 
there's a little bit more conviction in what she offers. So it is interesting to talk about conviction and changing your mind mm. in the same person or in the same sentence. Right, she because can, convictually if, if somebody, changes her mind. Well, yeah, if somebody had really strong <laughs> convictions, you would think they would hold to them no matter what. Well, I mean, look, she's criticised for having slippery values, which is not a good asset for a, a politician who should be able to declare their values. But clearly <laughs> the system isn't working that well. And so what I'm saying is that she might feel um, convicted about a particular belief or value at a place in time, but it doesn't mean that she will feel convicted enough to stick with that belief if... If more evidence some, comes along. Yeah. Well, I mean, authenticity appeals to everyone. Clearly, it the illusion of whatever it was with Trump of authenticity worked in his favour, uh, speaking off the cuff, telling it how it is, lying, going... Yep, Simon, telling it how it is, is that the... I, I just think that's a I think that's a bit of a fiction. I think we continue to... The only reason Trump is president is because the United States has an unusual constitutional system whereby the majority of the population can vote one way, but because the president carries... Well, who the person who becomes the president carries the majority of states, they somehow become president. Trump did not win the popular vote. Yeah. Um, and I think the notion that he speaks to some kind of authentic, real America is to buy into a rhetoric that he's very much spun and conservatives and his, his particular breed of kind of conservatives have spun for themselves. I, I don't think it's, it's not something I wouldn't say, well, for instance, that it's working, but I, I don't think that makes it, I mean, to say something bizarre, I don't think that makes his authentic, authenticity truly authentic. I really look forward to seeing where this is going and it'll come out uh, on The Familiar Strange sometime in the next month. As for myself, the next thing I'm planning to write uh, is going to have a title, something along the lines of Creeps and Assholes, because it's about theories of social kind of category making. Back when I was in university, and that's longer ago than I'd care to say, uh, I had a, a friend of mine who said she had a, a particular theory about men, that all men fell into one of two categories, and those two categories were creeps and assholes. And she had a whole very complicated typology of what kind of men were creeps, what kind of men were assholes, and under what kind of situations you would know who's a creep and who's an asshole. I was fascinated at this, by this at the time. I'm still fascinated by it now. I've been taught, I'm still, all these years later, I'm still talking about it. Everywhere I go, I would ask people, especially women, what they thought about this typology, that all men are either creeps or assholes. I've never found another person who agreed with it, even for a second. Not one. And I keep bringing it up because my friend back then was so convinced by it. This was her own personal social typology that she had made, and she felt like it explained the world that she lived in, and yet nobody else feels that way. Does she like you? She did. She was my girlfriend for a couple of years. Whoa. And she thought you were so she thought, you she were said, a creep. She said I was a creep, and I was uh, always a little offended by that. <laughs> I always would have sort of preferred to be an asshole. Yeah, well. And the thing is, I would like to explain what the difference between creeps and assholes is. But it would be pointless because this categorization isn't real. Okay, so regardless of that false dichotomy, what did you understand to constitute a creep? You still want to know what a creep is? Yeah, yeah, I still right. want to know. So I'm going to try to remember how this went. So basically, assholes were brash and confident and took selfish, took what they wanted, and you knew exactly what they were about. And creeps would be kind of ingratiating and disingenuous and sort of try to go through the back door and flattering and so trump is both 
Oh, he's an asshole. He's an asshole, most certainly. But behind closed doors, he's also a creep. This is the issue, right? Because nobody right. falls into a single category at all times. Yeah. Right? Somebody could be an asshole at work and a creep at home. Somebody could be an asshole when they're young and a creep when they're older. Or somebody might never be an asshole or a creep, and it's just ridiculous that we're even having this discussion. <laughs> and so you know, this is this kind of social category making, of course, it's something that all people do. And the exploration of those categories is really interesting, and it's kind of what we do in anthropology. But it's necessary to recognize at the same time just how constructed and artificial and contingent they are. One of the first things you just said there was um, they weren't real. And they weren't real because nobody else agreed on them. So are you saying that if she was able to garner enough support for her theory that that would make it real? Well, the classic examples I could make here of other kinds of social categories that some people would argue are not real and some people would argue are a social reality would be like the big examples, race, gender, mm -hmm. right? Gender, it's something, so speaking again of the same-sex marriage coming up today, uh, gender is one of those things that a lot of people will argue is a complete social construct. There are some biological things, but they don't equate to gender. This is not my area of specialty, so I'm not going to go too deeply into it. But uh, that gender, because it's something that's socially constructed, is also something that can be socially deconstructed and moved beyond in a way. So to say that gender isn't real certainly ignores the social constructions of our moment to which lots and lots of people subscribe. But to say that it has a deeper underlying reality in the sense that we might say a frog is different from a cow, they belong to different categories. They are all alive. They are. So there, there's ways that they're, <laughs> Not this is why categories overlap. I guess you could say it's intersectional, but that might be a little reductionist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the frog and the cow <laughs> intersectionality. Might I, don't think, I don't think there's anything that's both a frog and a cow. <laughs> <laughs> but they belong to multiple categories, not only the category of frog and the category of cow. Uh, but the, So the gender has a social reality that is contingent. Mm -hmm. It's socially contingent. So creeps and assholes could also be, have a socially contingent reality when you're dealing with that one person who believes it's a real thing, if it shapes her behavior. But does she really believe it's just the one thing? Like, do, do people really believe what they say? Ooh. That is a very large question. <laughs> it's a very <laughs> yeah, large question. Like, I feel like people just throw things around quite flippantly, but they're not really in touch with what they mean. Speaking of authenticity and political mm. speech and whatnot. Exactly. This is something we will all have to continue to explore throughout our anthropological careers. I'm going to be writing just a little bit about it on the blog this month. I'm afraid that's all the time that we have to discuss all of this right now. Uh, I want to thank everybody for listening and thank my fellow familiar strangers. Julia Brown. Simon Theobald. Jody Lee Trimba. And I'm your host, Ian Pollock. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producer is me, Ian Pollock. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places. Don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes or dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps us make the show better. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, if there were any, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything you want to say to me or the other hosts of the show, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. You can find a link to his EP in the show notes. Special thanks to Julia Miller, Tina Salo, Will Grant, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening. And until next time, keep talking strange. Good evening and good night. See you, everybody. See ya. <laughs>